mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Squirt Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today immigrated to the United States from Ukraine at the very end of the Soviet era. She spent her adolescent and teen years in New York and attended medical school as a single parent before come before becoming the only Jewish female Ukrainian immigrant female bariatric surgeon in Las Cruces, New Mexico. That was a mouthful. Oh, and she might be my cousin, but we'll talk more about that later. Karina Arbatova MacArthur, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You had an eventful morning. You have a very demanding job, and I'm glad you're able to make it here today. Of course, we won't ask you any details, but was how accurate was I? Uh, in my my introduction to you being the only Jewish female Ukrainian Ukrainian immigrant bariatric surgeon in Las Cruces, New Mexico. I, I think that is 100% accurate. And we could probably widen the net, and not just Las Cruces, probably New Mexico, probably maybe even the Western United States. Um, I'm not sure about that, but, you know, I think probably, you know, there's maybe 10 of us. You know, I don't know them all. <laughs> U- Ukrainian female Jewish? Bariatric surgeons, I would think so, yeah. Wow, I uh, but oh, probably over the course of uh, over the United entire United States, right? But I know some of them, um, and some of them I don't know. But it's you know, I think there's a lot of um, you know, there's there's. I mean, obviously, it's like the the stereotype, right? It's the Jewish doctor. So I think that you know, as the families, you know, made their way in the country, they a lot of them did encourage their children to go to medical school. So I wouldn't be surprised if there doesn't female Jewish bariatric surgeons in the United States. Well, but I think probably not in Las Cruces. Probably not Las Cruces. And we've talked <laughs> about this before. I think when you and I, you're, you're about my age, a few years younger than me. I think when we were kids, it was more what I would call the tail end of the era where it was, you had the stereotypical Jewish doctor where there are a lot of Jews in, in the medical field. And I think that now, obviously, we're starting to see other groups. And you and I know people, obviously, here, here locally who, who are members of an, one of those other groups. But um, in any case, you are unique, and that, and you, you've got a story that's that's not like you know everybody else's, and that's why I asked you to come on the show. And thank you very much for doing so. Uh, has it been a busy week for surgery for you, or? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a sort of like a regular week, and then I got an emergency uh, consult, and that's what I was, you know, why I was a little late this morning, and uh, that went well. And you know, hope hopefully everybody will you know behave themselves and not need emergency bariatric surgery this weekend, and keep their weight off, right? And keep their weight off, yes. But although that's not an emergency. So. No, I wouldn't call that an emergency <laughs> at all. So I, I tend, I have the habit of, of doing things kind of chronologically, and I try to get away from it from time to time. What I would like to ask you, what do you remember about your child? You know, I, if I'm not mistaken, you came to the United States when you were nine years old. Yeah, that is, that is correct. 1989, which, um, did you know at the time that you didn't have things that people in the Western world had? Um, what was your? Were you aware of your situation, uh, if you will? The well, doing I without. Think, you know, I think it was. It's it's such a different way of growing up. I think that um, you know, 
just being, you know, being a doctor and being middle class and, you know, sort of being in that sphere with my friends, um, people make all sorts of assumptions about what your childhood was like or what resources you had. But, um, but we were pretty poor. Um, you know, I mean, everybody was kind of poor in, in the Soviet Union, but, um, but we were, you know, we had about a, maybe like a 750 square foot apartment for four adults and a child. Cause my mom was also a single mother and she was living with her parents and her, um, teenage brother. And so, um, you know, so I had, you know, I was shared a room with my mom and there was another room that my grandfather and my uncle shared. And then my grandmother would like sleep in the hallway on a, like a, one of those, um, pull down Murphy bed kind of things. Right. So, um, so, you know, but even though it was, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, uh, privileged childhood like I still when I think about my childhood I it you know it was fun I had you know I had good friends and you know I um I liked my school and my mom did you know everything she could to like make sure I had toys and you know all the regular things that kids had it's just that now when I if I went back to that apartment which I had never had I would probably be shocked because it's probably the size of some master baths the whole apartment is probably the size of some master baths and closet combinations in um, here in New Mexico. Well, I think, you know, a lot of people get, and this may sound a little bit cliche, but what you have doesn't necessarily have to be things or items. And, you know, as somebody who grew up with grandparents that lived far away, I mean, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I had grandparents in El Paso, Texas, and a grandmother in Miami. The fact that you have grandparents in your own home is a is something of a value, something you can't really put a price on. But I, I guess I, I wanted to follow up by saying your experience by having uh maybe two parts to this, having that many people living in such a small space and having kind of a multi-generational house. How was that a different, was that out of the ordinary for where you grew up or was it fairly common? I think it was fairly common. I mean, I think that um, people, you know, one of the biggest problems in the Soviet Union and probably the Soviet Union would have lasted a lot longer if, um, you know, if they didn't have uh, government planning for housing because there was always housing shortage, created a lot of societal like you couldn't just be a builder and build a house and then sell off the apartments. That just wasn't a model that they could follow because of the communism. So the housing was all planned centrally, and a lot of times the you didn't meet demand. And so, like my grandparents did want to move to a bigger apartment. They felt like they had two adult children and a grandchild, but they weren't able to. But that was fairly common. So nobody had a big apartment. No, nobody had a lot more than uh, you know than everybody else did. And I think that wasn't the part that bothered people. I think for my, you know, the Jews in, in the Ukraine, what really bothered them is that they were still second class citizens. And so, um, you know, you would have Jew written on your passport as opposed to Ukrainian, right? So there were people that were Ukrainians and there were people that were Jews. So they, even though you lived in Ukraine and, you know, there's so many, so many generations back, like it's, you know, we don't know who, where we came from, right? Before Ukraine, because I mean, you could count six, seven generations back of, of Ukrainians um, and um, but still you were like considered a different nationality so you didn't really feel like it was your homeland and uh, and people also kind of could pick you out they would know who you are and they would treat you a little differently and there would be quotas in um, higher you know educational institutions about how many Jews could attend even to you know when I left well it that seems to be kind of contrary to this whole 
idea of this communist utopia where everybody, you know, nationality doesn't matter and religion doesn't matter. And of course, as you and I know, our people have been singled out and treated differently for no, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that, but were you aware, um, what was your, let's put it this way. What was your knowledge even as an eight or nine year old of the West? What were you, did you know anything beyond what state propaganda told you? So I, I think that one of the, really unique things about growing up Jewish, right? So on the bad part, right, there was all the discrimination, but on the good part is that, well, a lot of Jews had immigrated to the West. So we had a direct connection to the West through them, right? So my mom's best friend immigrated, um, you know, in 1979, like basically right after I was born, and she raised her family in Brooklyn. And so, like, I would always have, like, her kids hand-me-downs you know, toys and, and clothes and stuff like that. And, and um, my other, my other mom's other, you know, best friend, her husband, um, you know, he actually, um, you know, was a little bit better off. And, um, and so they had a VCR. And so we would watch cartoons. And, you know, so I, I definitely was aware that there was such a thing as America, like you it was like almost like a dirty word, like you couldn't <laughs> say it. My mom would always be like, don't tell anybody that, you know, you got these from America, like kind of thing, like, you know, because it was it was you were like the traitor to the right. party, right? Well, if 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 I'm not mistaken, and I remember as a child, I don't know how true this was, but we were always taught and we were led to believe that people weren't allowed to leave, and that you know it was hard. Uh, it was almost like you know if you were in the Soviet Union or, or in an Eastern Bloc nation, it was hard to get out. And we actually had, you know, uh, my parents helped with uh, a family that was sponsored through our our temple who were um, Hungarian, uh, Hungarian Jews. And uh, he was he was an English professor of some sort, and they had to do, there was a lot of trickery that was involved in them getting out, and he had to pretend he was going on a teaching assignment in England, if I remember correctly, and he begged and begged and begged for them to let him bring his family. Of course, when the when the teaching assignment was over, he he had worked worked it out who, through whoever, how, however, to get over here, but it was very secretive. And that's what we kind of were led to believe in the United States at that time. What was the circumstances, uh, what were the circumstances under which your family was able to, to leave Ukraine and come to the United States? So I'm not, I'm definitely not an expert in this, but, um, but my understanding was that, um, you know, like Israel really wanted Soviet Jews um, for its own reasons, right? Which is like way above the, you know, the level of our conversation here. Um, and so they were always, you know, um, basically, you know, trying to talk to the Soviets about letting them out. And then there were also American Jews that were like working on, they knew that the Jews were discriminated against in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union really didn't want them, but they also weren't really willing to let them go for a long time. And then they had two big releases that, like where they like let people have exit visas, one in 79 and one in 89. And then after that, once the Soviet Union started falling apart, it, it became a lot easier to secure a, like a refugee visa. Right. And, and it kind of occurs to me, they didn't, they, of course, the Soviet Union didn't like Jews. You would think they would want to get rid of them, uh, but still made it difficult to get out. And you kind of followed, you know, you, you led me to kind of where I was going before. The, the, the timing of you coming over um, is pretty close to when the wall started to come down. Um, was there any overlap? Did that have anything to do with it? Did it make it easier for you? I th- yeah, I do think so. I think that, you know, Gor- that was around the time of Gorbachev. Gorbachev was, you know, attempted to save the Soviet Union by relaxing the firm grip 
um, you know, and but unfortunately, you know, it was so rotten from within that um, that even when when that happened, basically, it just all kind of fell apart like a deck of cards, right? And um, like a like a house of cards. And so, um, you know, so yeah, it, that release of Jews in '89 to '91 or so absolutely had. I mean, they didn't care that much anymore. Let's just put it this way, and they were just like, "Yeah, that's fine." They had bigger problems to to worry about. Yeah, and so it was it was easier, but it was. I mean, we were stateless, so we left as refugees. We completely abdicated our um, our citizenship of uh, the USSR. Of course, you know, there's lots of stories of people like going to travel and and being students and stuff like that, and you know, from the USSR, and then all of a sudden realizing they didn't have a country anymore after the fall, right? Right. And all of a sudden, they, you know, they would have had to come back to Latvia or something like that, but they didn't have a Latvian passport. So there's all sorts of people like, um, you know, kind of being stuck in those weird situations. And we were basically stateless. And so, you know, we spent about three months in Italy being sort of uh, stateless refugees waiting for our American paperwork to go through. And then it took about six years, I think, to get American citizenship. Something like that. So we had, you know, we were permitted to stay. You know, we're refugees. We were permitted to stay. We had green cards, but we didn't have citizenship for six years. Was that years. the idea all along was to become a citizen? Yeah, I definitely think so. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like it would it would be safer than, you know, when you're in the kind of that limbo status with a, even a permanent resident or? Yeah, no, definitely. I, um, I mean, I think that um, everybody in my, uh, by that time that I got my citizenship, I was very American already. Now, who um, came over? You and your mom, or was it your grandparents or your uncle? I mean, uh, so we, uh, my grandmother had two sisters that they, she kind of spent her whole life with, um, very close, and um, and it was you know her, my grandfather, their two kids, which is my mom and and um, you know and her brother, myself, and then also um, her um, her sister and her sister's family, all and their grandkids all came over. And with the plan that um, at some point her other sister and her daughter were going to come as well. And so within a year or two, the other sister came over as well. They all settled for a really long time. They, you know, my grandmother and her sister were living in the same building in Brooklyn. So they kind of recreated their, you know, the little mini shtetl uh, <laughs> for themselves. And um, and the other sister was living like a short walk away. And, and that's how they spent the last like 20, 30 years of their life, being super close to each other and being able to walk to each other's apartments still. Well, that doesn't necessarily seem that uncommon when you when you think about some of the bigger cities, especially on the East Coast, with the, have the little Italys and the Korea towns mm-hmm. and things like that. It makes sense for people to live, I don't want to say live communally, but live close to other people who have shared experiences and have a shared culture. And, and that's how you end up with these little ethnic neighborhoods. Now, uh, before we move on, I, I just thought of something that you had actually mentioned a couple of weeks ago and that you had, didn't have an orange until you, you never had an orange until you moved to the U.S.? <laughs> so, yeah, there were certain fruits that it was, like, really hard to get. And I remember... And I'm sorry about that fly. I, I, that <laughs> I know, fly loves you. It's killing me right now. And I want to come over and smack it right off your head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yes, it's like my nemesis right now. So, um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, I never went hungry. I always had plenty of food and really nutritious food, really. Like, you know, I mean, we would have feasts like we hard to. Everybody just had such good skills in terms of um, cooking because, you know, you couldn't really go to a restaurant very easily. You know, you didn't have extra money and stuff like that. So we would have these incredible feasts, um, you know, at our houses, right? Well, like all fresh, fresh baked pastries and 
and fresh baked, you know, uh, fresh cooked, you know, food and stuff like that, really complex stuff. But, you know, there's just certain things that you just would not be able to get. There's no way to really get any kind of processed foods, which... Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It, it's, it's, you know what, it's, um, it's very uh, funny to me, right, that like... You know, we kind of came to the U.S. and we were like, oh, my God, we can get Doritos. I remember, like, I had just, like, a passion for Doritos. Like, I just thought Doritos were, like, the best thing ever. And um, and now we all, will, like, went back to, like, Whole Foods and all this stuff. And, and I mean, not I mean the store Whole Foods, but, like, literally right. the concept yeah. of Whole Foods. Whereas, like, I spent my entire childhood, you know, eating Whole Foods and thought it, like, sucked. And, like, everybody who was in America, like, had it so much better. So it, it did kind of change over the course of my lifetime. But... Um, but there's yeah certain fruits like bananas and oranges were like much harder to get, just because they you know they're not fruits that were grown in the Soviet Union, and um, and it was like a treat to get like bananas. Like it was, I was like, oh my god, I can't. But there's never got a bananas. shortage of beets, right? <laughs> no, there's you never can't a shortage, have a shortage of, beets of beets in the Soviet or Union. Or wheat, or like lots, you know, lots of other good things. Like I mean, like I said, we never went hungry, and in fact, we ate like incredibly well because everybody just really knew how to cook well. Well, thanks to you, I discovered a few weeks ago, um, over 4th of July, I discovered uh, Russian potato salad. Yes. It's... Which I didn't eat. I just kind of a weird thing. I was when you were making it on Saturday, I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have so much of that tomorrow. And then Sunday came, and I didn't have much of an appetite. I ate some, and it was, it was good. But I, I, um, it's the pickles. I like the pickles in the, in the potato salad. Yes, I thought, it's well, so interesting, what, right? What else is in there that was... One might not expect. It was like ham, pickles, potatoes, and eggs, and um, and mayo. So it was a potato salad plus. Potato salad plus. I like that. And you should maybe you should you know, make it and package it, and that'll be the brand name. <laughs> Karina's potato salad plus. I think. Yeah, I it's did. it's one of those things that's really hard to like keep. It's like you know you make a huge amount of it, right? Because all the ingredients are super cheap. I mean, you get a dozen eggs. You know, like a you know a bag of potatoes, right? Like really cheap bologna or ham. I guess it was bologna, not ham. It was bologna. And then pickles. You know, you, you're talking about all of the ingredients for this gigantic bowl of potato right. salad are ten bucks, and then you have all of it left over all the time. Well, it's, and, it's better to have too much than not enough. Yeah, right? but it, after like about a day or two, I mean, it, all that it, mayo and potatoes and, and eggs is not going to well. keep. <laughs> now, learning English. Um, we talked about this. You spoke Russian and Ukrainian at home. I didn't speak Ukrainian, just Russian. So we, they we, were, we were in a we were in a part of um, Ukraine that they mostly was Russian speakers. Odessa. Odessa, yeah. Okay, so coming to any English at home? No, no English. Um, I remember my mom put me in a class, uh, and like I learned a few words. It was just like it was like an English class, and she was like, "Okay, you know, we got to get you ready because you're going to America." Uh, which was like surreal, you know, and um, and so I learned a few words, but you know I was a regular kid, right? So I was just like playing and, and doodling while they were trying to teach me English words. So I think I came with like four English words: goodbye, frog, love, and I. So somehow I was like trying to talk, speak English, like by combining this these four words. And then, of course, you know, as soon as I came to the States, my cousins all taught me, like, all the bad words, right? I think I'm still get. I can't get over frog. I think frog is funny. That's just that's a weird just one. one of the words that yeah. out of the way. But what time of year did you get here? Uh, April, end of April. And did you go to public school right away? No, I had a break, like six-month break. Okay. Um, and when you, get, when you went to school, did you feel like you'd picked up some English? 
So it was funny because I was like, I loved reading, right? And、uh, I had very limited access to like Russian novels、um, because, I mean, where are you going to get those? I mean, 89 in Brooklyn, like, there, it wasn't right now, you can get any kind of book you want, right? And probably would be a lot harder to, to learn English because, you know, I mean, you, you, can live, you can live completely well in southern Brooklyn without speaking a word of English. Like, you don't have to. Speak English. And so, but at the time, right, I was like, I wanted to read, I wanted to be, watch movies, and I couldn't understand anything. So I would go to the library and I would just look at the covers. So when I finally went to school,、um, I tried, you know, I, I was a little bit of a bad kid. So I would like sometimes like take Russian books and just read them because I didn't understand anything like what the teacher was talking about. And so the teacher, that was, I, I guess it was, they didn't have ESL or something like that. I don't really understand it, but. I, the teacher put me in the back of the class with like another kid and like, an, like another 10 year old. And she was like, Teach her to read. Now that's efficiency, right? That's like, you know, New York public high school efficiency. Like, you don't hire a teacher, you just get like one of the kids to teach other kids. And yeah, and this kid was like reading with me and he would just, I would like get a word wrong and he would make me feel dumb because it was like my peer, right? And I was like, I don't want him to make fun of me. So, so that's how I learned. Yeah, so that's how I learned to, to read. So by the time, you know, I, a year passed by with that kind of like intense peer pressure, I spoke English, I mean, with an accent, but I spoke English pretty well. Yeah, and then did you continue to go? Were you in public school all the way through high school? No, I ended up going to,、um, like, it's actually a miracle that, you know, that I can speak English as well as I can because I went to like a Russian language, Russian Jewish school, private school, like from sixth to 12th grade. And like everybody was ru- like a Russian as, as a, their first language. And with, But, with the instruction, though? The instruction was in English. It was、okay. in English. But, you know, all the girls in the school were all Russian Jewish immigrants. And,、um, you know, they all would speak amongst themselves and, you know, in Russian as well. And,、um, and, But, you know, somehow, actually, you know, one of the most unique things about that, my class in that school, is how well everybody did. So it was like, Our educational level in that school wasn't very high. I mean, we never even had AP classes. Like, AP classes are this big thing. I think they tried to do one AP class and it was like a miserable failure. So, no AP classes, nothing, you know, they tried to have like a couple of college credits that we could do, but it wasn't at the level of a lot of the public schools in the area, even. And,、um, but in our class of 12, we, everybody went to college. And、um, I think we have like five doctorates out of, wow. out of 12 people. So there's me, I'm a surgeon. There's two dentists, one foot surgeon,、um, one PharmD. And out of the other people, like the other seven people, some of them probably have MBAs at this point. I know the, a bunch of them went to business school, but some of them have MBAs. So, so it was kind of a, you know, bizarre, right? Because you've got like all these kids, that, it was like a charity school. Because all of us could only pay like 200 bucks a month for the school. And yet everybody ended up being really well off. And well, I think the, you know, if I had to guess, I would say the tradition among our people of holding education in very high regard and the work ethic of an immigrant, regardless of where you came from or what your ethnicity is,、uh, put those things together. And, and probably not that surprised at, at what you just told me about how everybody ended up. Now, when you went to college, did you go locally in New York? I went to NYU. Okay. It's like a、um, pretty popular school for kids from New York. Well, and, and pretty competitive admissions, I would imagine. I mean, it has that reputation of being a very well, well respected 
Um, now, did you know when you went to college that you wanted to go to medical school? I had some ideas about it, um, and uh, it was really just a very, like, I mean, there's a reason that, like, all of all, all of the doctorates that I told you about were all in the healthcare fields. It seemed like a very acceptable and, and positive thing to do for, in general, but also, like, as a female, you know, it was very, like, you know, it, it made a lot of sense, right, to go into healthcare. And so um, it seemed like more of a sure thing in terms of just having a stable salary, and, you know, something like the law or, you know, or business, like probably required like a lot more humanities and English, you know, pro like proficiency in writing and stuff like that. So sciences were like a refuge for all of us. And so I had an idea that healthcare was something I wanted to go into. And then, you know, I went into, uh, you know, university and, um, and it, you know, it kind of, I just kind of like fell into it. I mean, I had an idea that this is what I wanted to do, but also a lot of people I knew were going to pre-med and I was like, well, I might as well be pre-med and see what happens. And then it just sucked me in. So, um, you know, I actually had a lot more of my, um, like, you know, real understanding of what medicine is once I got pregnant and once I had my daughter and I had a lot more interaction with the healthcare system than when I first started taking pre-med classes. Like I was almost like, well, I might as well do these pre-med classes because I can't go to medical school without them. But I wasn't a hundred percent sure that that's what I wanted to do. Now you, you had your daughter when you were in college or medical school? College. Okay. What year? Uh, I got pregnant in the beginning of my junior year. Okay. And you did um, a couple months ago, real long, long total, the whole story uh, in long form. And, um, I just, I think it's amazing the idea that, you know, I had it easy when I went to college. I uh, lived at home. I had all my meals prepared for me. Um, I didn't have to, I was very fortunate, didn't have to worry about how it was going to be paid for, uh, didn't have to worry about all those things. And I still felt like, you know, being a student was, it was stressful to a certain degree. Um, I would imagine at this point you're on student loans, um, you're a single parent, um, and you're trying to navigate this whole thing, yet you, you found a way to, did it ever... Becoming a parent uh, at that point in your life, did it ever give you any pause about pursuing medicine? Did you ever think, you know what, maybe I should just another four years of really intense study plus God knows how many more years of, of other stuff after that might be a little bit of a tall order. Did, you, did it ever give you, do you have any second thoughts about? No, that's, I mean, that's a really good question. I think it's, it's complicated because, you know, right now, um, you know, um, like looking back on it, right? It seems like this great accomplishment, but when I was living through it, it I think the people, what people perspective, like my peers' perspective, were like, "Wow, like I can't believe she made it so hard for herself." Like there was a lot more judgment there, right? It all it all looks very different when you're looking back at a successful person, but at the time there was no guarantee that I was going to even go to med school. Right. So I think everybody just thought I was like nuts, you know. And, um, and for me, like, I mean, it wasn't even a question to have the baby or not. Like it was not something that I, yeah. you know, it's something that I really feel, feel strongly about. So, so I was like, once it happened, it was like, well, you know, that's what my life is going to be like. But it, I think definitely people had a lot of questions about like how I was going to do all of it. And, um, and I think when I, at first I, I just kind of went through the motions and I, I was really, you know, lucky, um, you know, because I, w I had kind of went through college pretty quickly. I had some credits when I first got into school and then I took like 18 credit semesters. So by the time I actually was like well into my pregnancy, I only had eight credits left for college. So I would like finished in three years basically. Oh, so wow. I spent the last year of my college essentially taking eight credits and like raising a 
a, a newborn. And so when I when she first was born, I definitely had my doubts. I, I, I didn't think I could do it. I mean, I was so exhausted. And uh, I think that's the story you were talking about that I wrote about is that, you know, I ended up with uh, you know, kind of not ever not filling out my applications, like always putting it off. And then I w- got to the point where it was the deadline and my family had to sort of swoop in and say, you know, we're taking the baby. You need to sit down. And, and we, you know, we used to do it with the typewriter. So, you know, you had to sit down on your typewriter and type up your applications. And um, and then I, you know, and then once I started getting the interviews, I was like, well, you know what? It's, I'm actually getting interviews. People are interested. But I didn't I didn't front and center my motherhood at all. Like when I was, um, you know, they can't ask you that question. And I didn't volunteer the information. Um, And maybe some people would have thought it was really interesting. But my experience throughout when I applied to residency was that uh, one person did write that I had a small child on my recommendation letter. um, And um, I had a a general surgeon at one of a very respected institution who was interviewing me said, well, looks like somebody uh, wrote that you have a small child in your recommendation letter, I guess they thought it would help you. Do you think that even today, I mean, in in 2021, I know we've come a long way. Do you think that there are still, and I'm I'm willing to bet at that time, nobody would have cared if if a male student or a male applicant had a small child. I'm not 100% sure about that either. Like, I think there's some people that would have cared and would have been like, that's, you know, how is he going to have time for residency? And, um, but yeah, like I, I definitely felt like, the fact that that was in my recommendation letter when I applied to residency hurt me. And it made people wonder, like, why does she have a kid? Why is she a single mother? And how is she going to be able to handle surgical residency? Um, I'm not the only single mother I know that has gone through surgical residency. You know, I know a person that has three kids that went through surgical residency as a single mother. I know another person who is a plastic surgeon who had one kid at 15 and one kid at 17. Wow. I mean, I was almost a college graduate, you know, Well, I mean, and in it, my 20s, you know. It can definitely be done. And I think, you know, I had a conversation a few weeks ago with another friend of ours who's a, a surgeon here locally. And, you know, she was a different situation, but had small children um, trying to do a residency with a husband who was overseas. And I mean, it can be done. And I it just I have all the respect in the world. I, I don't know that I've had, you know, maybe for a better, you know, I, I spoke about my kind of easy time ish going through college. When I first moved to New Mexico here and I was going through my, my basic job training, um, I had my challenges. Uh, I was far from home. I was in a place that was, you want to talk about a culture shock, go from Washington, D.C. to Silver City, New Mexico. And, um, I mean, we all had our challenges, but what I didn't have is I didn't have anybody else to take care of. So, I mean, I, I kind of think about some of the struggles that, that we have. Somebody's always got it more difficult. Um, but in any case, you got into medical school and um, you, you were lucky enough to meet your husband, David, who, you know, Interestingly enough, when I first met you, it was it was funny to hear through my wife who met you first that, you know, we went to university together at the same university at just about the same time. And still don't think we figured out whether or not we've crossed paths. We must have. Um, and then to end up, you know, here in Las Cruces together. But you go through medical school, you do a general surgery residency, and then you settle on bariatric surgery. Correct? Right. How does that, what drew you to bariatric surgery? Well, I think I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to do bariatric surgery at first. I wanted to get more uh, skills in laparoscopic, minimally invasive surgery. And then I just kind of fell in love with it during my fellowship. Um, you know, it was um, it was just so dramatic to see people come in and, you know, having all these health problems, right? And over the course of the year, 
you would sort of like my my fellowship year i kind of would see them at various points and then toward the end of the year seeing them all you know doing so much better being off their medications um you know losing all the weight and being healthier and being so happy and grateful and i realized that this was the right place for me because i really wanted to be in a very happy field and there's very few happy fields in in medicine um there's like OBGYN, right, where you're delivering a baby. There's, um, you know, uh, there's things that are like simpler, but most of the time when people are, you know, are in the doctor's office, they don't really want to be here. And that's the only difference with, with what I do is that people are very happy to be in a bariatric office. They're very happy to get bariatric surgery and they're happy afterwards. And, um, and so even though you're doing something really amazing, you're really promoting wellness as opposed to necessarily treating the disease once it's far gone. So now, you're preventing them from getting really sick and being in that sort of depressing state. Now, you mentioned something a few minutes ago about you being interested in laparoscopic and minimally invasive mm -hmm. surgery. That kind of I, That's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. It, do you do anything but laparoscopic? I do. It's very rare that I have to do any kind of open surgery. Um, so mostly I do laparoscopic or robotic surgery. And it's, but nowadays almost everybody is doing most of the general surgery with lapar laparoscopy. When I trained, you know, so I was in residency, you know, 15 years ago. There still was a, I mean, yes, most of the things were done laparoscopy, but it was, it was still was considered the gold standard to open up and do open surgery in a lot of places. And now I feel like. Everybody can pretty much do everything laparoscopically or minimally invasively unless they really, really have to do an open surgery. I have, so. to, I have to tell you, I mean, you, you know a little bit about my history. I have a, I have a very good relationship or had with a, a formerly large orthopedic surgery group here in town. And I think it's different for men. Like I was almost a little bit disappointed when I had my knee surgery a couple of years ago that all it was was two little dots. I didn't get a, you know, you know, they say chicks dig scars. Like, I don't think my <laughs> wife cares really, but you know, it's like for an athlete or for somebody who's involved in athletics and fitness to have, to have a nice little scar. It's like a trophy. Yeah, um, that's funny. But, um, so I'm, I'm really interested and I, and I've told you this story before. I, um, about 15 years ago and I had been this heavy before, but about 15 years ago, I got up to a weight that's about 25, 30 pounds more than I am now. And the, the, not only was I that heavy, but I, I wasn't the, my body composition wasn't good. Um, and my doctor who's obsessed with my weight, uh, mentions kind of casually, she said, you know, if you gain much more weight, we may have to start talking about bariatric surgery. And my response was, at least in my head, how much weight would I have to gain? <laughs> Cause I can do that. <laughs> and, um, you know, 47 years old, I probably had to start, started getting chubby, you know, eight years old. So a good 40 years of dieting for me. Um, I've, I've had some lifelong issues with sugar as a very humongous problem for me. Uh, triggers a lot of really bad, you know, binge type behavior. I think for 10 years, it's, I, I think I've licked it. I, th I think I really have, but I do understand that there's very much a psychological component to weight management for a lot of people. And, and I kind of put this idea in your head. I think last week we talked about this. Um, what kind of work, because when you do these surgeries, people can't just go back to eating like they right. were, it'll, they'll literally die. Um, what do you do in the lead up to, uh, you're doing a surgery to make sure that the people, your, your patients or, or prospective cases are in the right mindset and in a good place that you know you can trust that you're going to do this work and that they're going to 
they're going to be able to deal with the 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 emotional, psychological, mental part of of eating well. Right. So I think there's a lot of education even from the very beginning. And I think that we have a the, a really um unhealthy paradigm about weight loss um in the western world, right? Um pretty much in the, you know, in the developing world, nobody worries too much about obesity, right? But um they're get you know, as a country becomes wealthier, uh, all of a sudden that becomes a big problem. And so and we have this idea that the default is for somebody to be thin and that you must be doing something wrong if you're overweight. But the statistics bear out completely a different reality, which is that um, like in Las Cruces, it's over 40% of the people are obese. Um, in the by, whole, by what standard? BMI. Okay. BMI. So 30 BMI and above. In, in the whole country as a whole, I think it's 42.4%. Interesting. Um, and then, uh, and that, that doesn't mean like you know, forty two point four percent are obese, and everybody else is is healthy weight. Forty two point four percent are obese, and something like another third of the pop- another third of the population is actually overweight. So you're talking about three out of every four people are actually either obese or overweight in this country, and that's not what we think. That's a surprising statistic, right? Because almost everything in this world, like in this in this country, that are like you know, plain seats clothing stores, right? It's all meant for either, uh, you know, a normal BMI or a slightly higher BMI. Um, And so when you start thinking about why the three out of every four people struggle with their weight, I think it's very obvious. I mean, there's never been any time in human history that we've had such ready access to food, right? So the human, and especially, right, the richest, most high calorie, packed calorie food, but, but it just in general, any kind of food. And sedentary lifestyle. Um, right. And probably the, it's the most sedentary lifestyle that, that humans have because ever had. Because we don't have to go out and work to actually look for the food that we're having a hard time finding. Right. Exactly. And, and, and think about everything our ancestors went through. Like, I'm not just talking about like Jewish people. I'm talking about people all over the world. You're talking about famines, wars, diseases, plagues, right? Um, it's very unlikely that somebody could really eat like, that wasn't really wealthy, could eat like a breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. So our bodies are really designed for star- long periods of starvation and are very adaptive for long periods of starvation. So what happens is when you go on a regular, you know, people tell you to diet and exercise and, and you go and you start dieting and exercising. Well, the body has no idea that you're actually going on a diet. And, um, and what it's doing is it's basically reacting the way that it always has is to maximize survival, which means minimize your weight loss and slow down your weight loss. And so you're fighting this battle with this very powerful biology that is the very reason that there are human beings today despite all of the hardships that our ancestors went through and then you know you add on top of that the fact that food can be a little addictive right it's a reward you know and you know you know those you know the the deer that we saw on fourth of july the ones that wanted the graham crackers right and they didn't want the celery (laughs) even the deer they wouldn't eat they wouldn't eat any vegetables they wanted the graham crackers because they can get their greens in the wild also, because the graham crackers taste better, right. they're biological creatures, right? So they they decide, you know, they're also, you know, primed to get something that's sweet because it has high calories and high carbs, right? And so we have access to like food that is essentially a drug in our brain, and it acts in an addictive manner, right? When I look at like some chocolate ice cream, I want it the same way that somebody wants a drug. It's exactly I, the same we're process. The same. You and I are the same then. But everybody is the same. It's it's all most humans, right? Right. 
And the only difference between food addiction and like al- drug and alcohol addiction is you can't go cold turkey. So you can't just say, you I'm not going to eat anymore. Not only are you still going to eat, everybody around you is going to eat. Right. So it's like they tell drug addicts are like, stay away from paraphernalia, stay away from like your old haunts, like, you know, people that are, you know, your old friends right. that make you trigger those cravings, right? Well, good luck trying to stay away from food if you're addicted to food. So... Yeah, and I do you do you have any established relationships that you refer people, other professionals that you refer your your patients out to before you do surgery to help with behavior modification or whatever issues they're dealing with that have contributed to their unhealthy eating or or their their battle with their weight? Yeah, we we do have, you know, relationships with psychologists and nutritionists and stuff like that in the community. And uh, and so the, and they need to they need to be aware of the tough battle that they will have to fight because these cravings and urges are not going away. Have you ever had to tell somebody, you know, I'm, I don't think you're ready? Yeah, I think it usually happens sort of outside of my the way we got it set up is, um, you know, they pretty much have to be ready to see me again. OK, so I think I think it's probably more of the, you know, our, our nutritional people that have to, you know, tell those stories. But I've had patients that like they come in. They don't do well. They come in, they don't do well. The third time's a charm. Because it's a process, just like any kind of behavior modification, right? You you may not, you know, you, you may fail mo- multiple times ultimately before succeeding, right? Now, do you also, um, I would imagine there are a lot of other things, other, a lot of other health issues that go along with just, you know, when so somebody can't just more, be morbidly obese without... They probably have problems with cholesterol in their heart and joints. Um, do you find that when you do a lot of long-term follow-up with uh, your patients, that a lot of those other things start to resolve themselves? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, a lot of people will end up off of all their medications. You know, they're just that, taking vitamins after the surgery. And and that's and that's something that I just honestly it was just kind of thought about. I hadn't thought about before you came in here today, but. You know, I, I, I see a lot of uh, things, you know, I, I, I have my issues. I go to a pain management doctor and I, sometimes I feel weird walking in there every three months because I'm one of the youngest and healthiest. I'm a, I'm a physically fit 47 year old who just happens to have a lot of issues that cause me a lot of pain, but I see a lot of morbidly obese people in there. A lot of people with walkers and canes and this, and they're so uncomfortable. And it just, it got me to thinking, you know, if if they took care of maybe some of the other things, would if, if they took care of the weight, would it resolve some of their pain issues or the orthopedic issues uh, or some of the other things? Uh, and I'm glad to hear that, that, you know, I guess you can feel kind of maybe extra good about what you're doing, that you're able to help people not just with, with uh, something that may be of, of, of cosmetic. And I don't think people do. You wouldn't do bariatric surgery for purely cosmetic reasons, right? I mean, there's got to be another major health well, I think, you know, look, we've, we've seen the last uh, year and a half or so, we've seen that obesity um, is in itself a pre-existing condition, right? Because, um, you know, vast majority of people that have died from COVID had some element of obesity overweight, right? And not all of them necessarily had a pre-existing other condition. So just obesity in and of itself is causing all sorts of biological changes in your body, inflammation, problems with arteries and stuff like that, Um, you know, decreased exercise capacity. So even if you don't have that diagnosis slapped on you, but you're just obese, you know, it's very very difficult to be completely healthy. It it can happen. I've seen it. People just very, very fit and very healthy, and they just happen to have extra weight. 
but we're talking about people that have a decreased exercise capacity. They, you know, they have a hard time. They're, they're short of breath when they're walking. They're having joint pain. So even though they're not necessarily, you know, a diagnosis that's on you, that's, you know, that's a chronic health condition, you're not healthy. You're not, you're not well, and you could be better. So, um, so it is a cosmetic effect, but the cosmetic thing is just, it's the fun part of it, right? Secondary. But it's secondary, and people are doing it. Very few people come in and they say, you know what, I really want to look good in a dress or in a suit. They're like, <laughs> they're saying, most people, what they tell me is that I have, I have a family that I love, and I need to be around for them. And that's why they do it. Now, Karina, I wanted to, uh, before we get done, because we're running a little short on time, I am very interested if you can go through, and you don't have to, you know, can't talk about it forever, but don't don't limit yourself either. I am interested in hearing about a little bit about just the history of, of weight loss surgery, bariatric surgery. When did it? When did people start doing it, and how have the techniques uh, evolved and progressed to what the what you're doing today, the procedures you're doing today? Um, so I think that you know um, the way that it sort of started is that there were these procedures that were being done for other reasons, and uh, doctors noticed that they were patients were losing weight. And since then, there's been quite a few iterations of different kinds of surgeries. One that's been really, really common that has basically has stuck around the longest and is always the one people come back to is the gastric bypass. It's a very common one. With the sleeve, it actually was really interesting the way that it got started is, um, is um, you know, people were doing it as a first stage of a two-stage operation and then they realized that, wait, the first stage is actually working really, really well. And so then it became a standalone operation. Something like the gastric band was very popular that was pushed by industry. And it was really successful for some people, but it's something that is becoming less popular. And, you know, I'm part of all these different, um, you know, organizations. And I see people, you know, experimenting and trying with different techniques all the time and doing research on different techniques all the time, balloons and suturing the stomach and then on the other hand, there's also a ton of research now into weight loss medications. That some of them are very promising. Um, you you mentioned something about the balloon, and that may be the one I was thinking about. Which is the one that you have to go in and get every now and again and replace? Um, or there's some sort of upkeep. The probably the gastric band is what you're thinking with okay. inflating and deflating, and and how does that cause more? So it seems to me like, I mean, sur- surgery or, or any kind of medical procedure carries with it a, a certain amount of risk. Do, do, the, do the benefits outweigh the risks of having to go in and... I don't do the band uh, much anymore. Um, you know, it's not as popular anymore among patients. Um, but there's, I think with, with the band, there's um, some people that are very successful with it. But yeah, it requ- it's the one that requires the most upkeep. So it's, it, I think maybe that's why it's slightly less popular. And also because there, I think overall there's other better options that make you lose even more weight. Now that we've talked about the past, what do you see in for the future of, of bariatric and weight loss surgery? So that's a really, really good question. Um, I actually do think a lot about the future because, you know, I always think to myself and I joke around like this. I'm like, well, a hundred years from now, probably somebody's going to be like looking at us like medieval doctors right. and they're going to be like, wow, the, you know, can you believe they just would go in and cut the stomach and do all this stuff to make somebody lose weight? Like, and they would have like medications or something that would do it. So I think that the way that um, I see the next, let's say, 20, 30 years in bariatric surgery is I think the surgeries aren't going away. Because I always tell people, like, that's really nice that they might have medications for it in 100 years. But you're living now. 
and you're, you know, life is short and, you know, if, if surgery could help you, even though some people think it's a little extreme, but if it's very safe and, and if it can help you live your better life, like you can't wait around for something better. Um, we know diet and exercise doesn't work for most people. So I think in the future, it's going to be a multidisciplinary process. I think surgery is going to be a part of it. Um, I think medications are going to be a part of it and a part of maintenance, right? So, you know, you have your surgery and then you go on medications to maintain. And I think like, you know, nutritional counseling and monitoring and maybe smart health devices um, will be a part of it as well. But I don't think you can, um, You, I don't. I don't think that surgery is, I think it's necessary but not sufficient for weight loss. I think that most people cannot lose a massive amount of weight without surgery. But they can't just do surgery and say, okay, I'm done. Then they still have to be really mindful of their behaviors and sometimes go on medications for weight loss to, you know, if they start regaining. And I think it's going to be this kind of multidisciplinary approach in the future. Well, anytime uh, I get to sit down with one of my friends for about an hour and talk on a Saturday morning is a good Saturday morning. So, Karina, thank you very much for that. Uh, but I've also learned a lot about bariatric surgery and about your experiences uh, growing up in Soviet-era Ukraine and coming to the United States. Thank you very much for being a guest on the Square Peg Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed this uh, last uh, 45, 50 minutes as much as I have. Uh, I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence. This is the Square Peg Podcast, where we talk to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. We will see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.